Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. Well, He is risen. That's right. Yeah, so this morning I'm going to be going into a bunch of different scriptures and I'm going to do something a little bit different than I've done over the past few years. Um, So we're going to jump in. And basically, so last week my wife and I went to this house, this person's house. We've been to for the first time, never been there before. And we both kind of round the corner at the same time and we see the living room. And off in a di- distance is this beautiful print. It's glass encased. It's got a beautiful frame. It's really large. And as we get closer to admire it, what we realized was it wasn't a print. It wasn't a photograph. It was actually a jigsaw puzzle. It was about a 1,000 pieces of a jigsaw puzzle that somebody painstakingly put together. And because of it looked so beautiful, they framed it and uh, put it up on their wall. See, I look at the Bible like that. The Bible, people say, the Bible. Your book, the Bible. They'll even criticize the Bible. But they criticize it in ignorance. Because the Bible, only because of the modern modern printing press of the 1500s, are we able to find this compilation of God's Word in a book form for convenience. Now they have it on computers, of course. But you have 66 books, 40 authors, spans three continents and three languages, and spans about 2,000 years. That's what we understand today as the Bible. Remember, 66 different works. And to me, I look at the Bible like those puzzle pieces. And when you put them all together, it's a beautiful picture of our salvation. And we're going to get to the resurrection. Okay? And, you know, it's... The Bible, when you look at God's Word, it's a story, a historical account of creation all the way through end times. And it's a picture of fallen humankind, sinful, rebellion, turned away from God. We're in our self-directed lives and routines. And God sending His Son into the world to die for our sins so that we wouldn't have to do any of the work. He did it for us so that we could come home. Because the truth is, We're all prodigals. The last two Sundays I covered the parables of the prodigal son, the parable of the lost. And you know what? Six people came forward those last two Sundays here to receive Jesus as their Lord and Savior. God is always desirous of his children to come home, but he set us free with our free will and our natural abilities and such. And love sets a person free. It doesn't strangulate them. It's up to us to decide whether we want to come back or not. The resurrection is smack dab in the middle of that understanding. The resurrection is, of Jesus Christ is a cluster, if you will, of those puzzle pieces that without the resurrection, salvation is, is nebulous, it's, it's cloudy, it's you know, difficult, it's impossible, Right? We need the resurrection to understand and to have a grasp and to know that we are saved and to continue to believe in that salvation through our life. 
The Christmas story is great, but Christmas falls flat without the resurrection. Even Jesus said to his disciples, I have to go to the cross. And some rebuked him. What, are you kidding me? <laughs> we're, we're on a roll here. <laughs> People are getting, they're getting their sight restored and they get raised from the dead. What do you mean you have to go to the cross? So the resurrection is very important. And what I'd like to do this morning is I would like to, as I looked at that beautiful picture, that image, what I'd like to do is bring the puzzle pieces of the different portions of Scripture together in a chronological format because human beings see and understand in linear time where God sees everything at once. So let's get down to our level, something I haven't done on all the Resurrection Sundays before, and kind of give a, an articulate, orderly account of what happened and throw some things in from archaeology, from the world, that, not that we need it, but to reinforce what the Bible says. So join me. Number one, the crucifixion of Christ. Luke 23, starting with verse 44. I'm going to take this from the crucifixion all the way through to the ascension. It says, and it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth until the ninth hour. When Christ was crucified, it was a very untimely darkness. Certainly, the God had done many different things to get the people's attention and what was going on at the time. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Leviticus 17, way back in the Old Testament, said that unless there's shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. So what did Jesus do? Well, God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. Jesus fulfilled incredible prophecies over hundreds of years from Isaiah 53, Psalm 22, and all the way back in the Torah, Leviticus 17:11, by dying on the cross for our sins. And you know what's interesting? He said on the earth, not only do I have to go to the cross for your sake, but no one takes my life from me. I give it. And this is amazing because Jesus separated his earthly body from his spirit after he had bore the sins of the world. You've got to really read into the details of the scripture. He gave, he gave, there was no reason for him to languish on the cross anymore. He gave up his spirit, and the Romans marveled that he had died so soon because it was supernatural. They didn't understand it. Two, Jesus was laid in a tomb. Matthew 27, 57. It says, Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. Jesus pulled disciples from everywhere. You know, it's funny, Jesus never advertised. You see today, ministries, they're, they're so, they're advertising, they pay big money, and, and they try to get the masses to come out. Jesus just walked the earth. He loved people, he taught, he healed, and naturally he was followed. Everyone's attracted to Jesus, rich, poor, young, old, no matter where you're from, no matter what ethnicity, Jesus is attractive to everyone. We continue. This man went to Pilate, Pontius Pilate, and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded the body be given to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a linen, clean linen cloth and laid it in his new tomb 
which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the tomb. This is also a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 9 specifically. But this is, when, when we look at the, see the image there, okay? Joseph was a wealthy man. He had workers. And that stone, which you can still see, if you, a friend of mine, pastor, just came back from Israel, took a lot of pictures. You can still see those tombs. You can still see those stones. And those stones are like well over 1,000 pounds. It took several people to roll them over the opening for obvious reasons with the decaying of the corpses. But it just gives more proof of the resurrection because it was made very difficult for Jesus to actually return. You know, there's a lot of theories out there, people that don't believe in the Bible, and the swoon theory said that Jesus didn't actually die, but somehow he had the strength to roll the stone. They're really pathetic, uh, quite frankly. They're not... I looked at them. I'm like, I don't want to believe the wrong thing here. You know what I'm saying? When I was searching... 25 years ago, I, I did a lot of searching. I did a lot of studies. And I looked at the criticisms as well. And this is what I came to. I'm just going to read also Matthew 27, continuing on, verse 62. The next verse down. On the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples come by night and steal him away, and say to the people, He has risen from the dead. So the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go your way and make it as secure as you know how. And the, the Roman soldiers would come and they would put a seal of the Roman Empire and now it was government property. And, you know, we see this today. There's a situation, the local government, and then the state comes in and, you know, it's no different in the Roman Empire. So Pilate didn't want a problem. He didn't want this talk of some risen savior, some guy from the dead. So they put a wax seal on it. They put soldiers in front of it so that nobody could do this thing. Nobody could steal the body. It's going to get very interesting, very interesting. You know, this kind of reminds me of, I don't know, they used to call them magicians. I think they're called different things today. But it reminds me of these guys who do something so amazing, this feat that they get out of, that they hamstring themselves so much so that for them to actually get out of it, you say, well, how, how could he do that? That's like impossible. And I've seen it. You got the guys, they, they handcuff behind their back. Then they, they put a straitjacket on them. Then they put like an anchor around their waist and throw them into the river. And, and in, in two minutes, the guy, his head bobs up, you know what I'm saying? And you're like, how the heck did he do that? <laughs> but I think they got that from God because he started doing that stuff first. Um, <laughs> you know, in Habakkuk 1, he says to the prophet, he goes, I'm going to do a work that's so amazing. You're not going to believe it. You see with your own eyes. In Malachi 3, he says the same thing. Test me in this subject and see if it's true. You know, watch that I don't open up the storehouses of heaven for you. God often does that. He hamstrings himself. And then he does this miracle so that people understand that it, it was a miracle. It was definitely from God. Three, women visit the tomb. Now remember, I'm doing this in chronological order. Um, we're going to go to Mark 16, 1 through 8. Mark 16. Now when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so they might come and anoint him. 
very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, this is Sunday morning, mind you, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they said among themselves, probably as they're walking towards the tomb, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? They realized that even a bunch of, of ladies did not have the strength to move this stone. So they're on their way to the tomb to see at least the body and maybe anoint him. If, you know, they, they had this quandary, this problem. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away for it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Remember, this is their picture of the angel. You know, angels are in the form of, of humans. Uh, they look different, but... They have some similarities. But he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Ladies, take a look. That's where they laid him. He's not there. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. And they went out quickly and fled from the tomb for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Jesus often told his followers, I have to be, it's amazing. He said it multiple times. You know, you know like when you tell your kids something a whole bunch of times and you hope they get it, and sometimes they still forget? But Jesus would tell his followers, he had male and female followers, this is what has to happen, but I'm going to rise again. So you would think that they would say, oh, the light bulb goes off. See, this isn't a fairy tale, because nothing goes as planned, because the human condition is, is, is expressed here. You know, the failings of people, the, the, the doubt, the fear, right? I mean, is it any different thousands of years later? This is God's word. Those people were no more godly or holy than us. They were just like us, which definitely gives us comfort, especially the disciples. Many of them were cowering. They were hiding. They're like, I wonder if the Romans are going to come for us next. I don't know that they said that, but it's just my conjecture. So, you know, this miracle does happen. Uh, four... Peter and John visit the tomb. Jump back to Luke 24. Starting with verse 9. It says, Then they returned from the tomb and told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. And their words seemed to them like idle tales. And they did not believe them. But Peter arose and ran to the tomb, and stooping down, he saw the linen cloths lying by themselves, and he departed, marveling to himself about what had happened. Marveling. He's even Peter. He's, you know, he says, Whatever happens, Lord, I will follow you to your, you know. And Jesus is like, Yeah, you're going to be one of the ones that flee. And he did. And even now, when he's told about Christ's resurrection, he's marveling. He's trying to figure it out in his finite human mind. In Mark 16, uh, continuing 9 through 11, Jesus appears specifically, and you see this order, to Mary Magdalene in whom he cast out seven demons. Now, if you watch the History Channel and some commentators, people have all kinds of ideas of who Mary Magdalene is, but the Bible tells us that she just was demon-possessed, and, and Jesus frees her from those demons. You know, and she's, she's free and she's appreciative of all that. In Matthew 28, 9 through 10, Jesus appears to the other female disciples, followers. Uh, again, he was very methodical about how he appeared to people. Now, you might ask, well, why the women first? 
I don't know, maybe, again, this is just my, I'll tell you when, what the scripture says and where my conjecture comes in. Maybe he rewarded their, their loyalty and their dedication because from what I read in the scripture, a lot of the disciples fled when Jesus was arrested and it seemed that only John, out of all of them, was at the foot of the cross. But all the women were there. They didn't care. Their attitude was probably, listen, arrest me. Jesus has done so much for me and my life and, and, and helped me get on my feet and loved me and promised me eternal life. Uh, I'm going to be here till the very end. And the women were the first ones to exercise great devotion and faith by going to the tomb on the Sunday morning. Maybe they, they set out to anoint his body, but maybe they also, part of them was very hopeful and they thought, well, you know, he did say he would rise from the dead. Maybe they were really hopeful. They had that glimmer of faith in there, right? And they weren't disappointed. Five, Christ appears to the disciples. I'm not going to read it for time's sake, but uh, in Luke 24, Jesus is with two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He's talking to two people. And there, it's amazing. Again, human nature, the human condition. So Jesus is resurrected. He's veiled, so they can't really make out who he is. He looks just like any other person, I suppose. And the three of them are taking a walk. And the two of them are kind of complaining, saying, you know, wow, Jesus of Nazareth. And, and Jesus is kind of being coy, and he's going, who, who's this? And, and they kind of say, oh, yeah, he was a great prophet, did many things, and we, we had our hopes in him. And then Jesus mildly rebukes them and tells them, well, let's go back to the Psalms and the Old Testament that spoke about how the Messiah was to be crucified. And then he sits down with them, breaks bread, and then he's revealed to them, and then he, he disappears and goes somewhere else. And I'm going to talk about why he had to go all these different places. Okay, five. Oh, excuse me, we did five. Um, I want to read Luke 24, starting with verse 36, continuing on. Luke 24, verse 36. Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were terrified and frightened and supposed they had seen a spirit. <laughs> they should have known his mannerisms. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Remember, not only are they seeing that he's tangible, but they also see the marks made from the cross, which apparently he bears for eternity. Why? Because of his love for us. Every time they looked at his piercings, or maybe when we get to heaven and see the marks that are still in there, we'll always remember that his, he loved us so much that he died for our sins. Who does that? <laughs> only God. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate it in their presence. One of the things I really love about Jesus is he's always eating. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Um, the Bible talks about the marriage supper of the lamb. You know, he would get together with people on earth. You know, I really believe that Jesus enjoyed what he was doing while he was here. He, he made connections. Listen, we are his children. He loves us. Every single person he met, like for us, maybe we go, we work in the city, or you know, we're, we're stressed, or we're in a hurry, or we've got to do a project. And every day of our life, think about it, how many people we pass. 
our brothers and sisters, human beings made like us. Jesus, every person he dealt with, he, he made a connection with. And, and eating back then was a way of, of solidifying that. It's different from our culture. Uh, so in, on the Emmaus Road, he did the same thing. He broke bread to eat. Here he's eating. And, and this is amazing. I don't know how we eat in heaven because I don't understand. Like today, we, we have gastric juices and we have heartburn and you know, different. I'm not going to go too far. You know, digestive issues and intestinal issues. And somehow we're going to eat in heaven and it's going to be great. <laughs> so, you know, it's just my mind. It's a childlike kind of thing with me. I, you know, I know a lot because I read the Bible several times, but there's some things he just hasn't revealed yet, and I'll find out when I get there. You know, I just want to take a moment to kind of take a poll. There was a movie uh, that came out last year. It was called Risen. It was from the Roman soldier's perspective of the life of Jesus. How many people saw that movie? I saw it. I think we're going to show that here. Fantastic movie. Now, again, it's, it's conjecture, it's artistic liberty, but it takes the portions of the Scripture and it, it, it's seen through the eyes of the centurion, you know, the Roman commander who watches Jesus die on the cross and his lifeless body hangs. And he's all bloody and he sees his, his eyes are actually open, but he's, he's dead, he's gone. And then what happens is the Christians start saying, he's risen, he's risen. Now, this really did happen in the Scripture. And, of course, the Roman government didn't get the joke. You know, they didn't appreciate that, nor did the Jewish leadership at the time. So what happened was, and you can find different, um, if you study Roman history, you can find this. There was a big push to quell and put down this Christianity thing. We can't have talk of a risen Savior because they're not going to worship the Roman pantheon. They're not going to respect us. So they had to put it down. And in the movie, he goes from house to house, grabbing the disciples, grabbing the women, bringing them to headquarters, and he starts interrogating them. And they, they all say the same thing. You know, they're so excited, even under threatening of death. So there's this one scene where he goes, and he goes into this house, and he finally finds the disciples in Jesus. And he's, he stands against the wall, he sees the disciples, and he's watching Jesus all cleaned up, talking, teaching, smiling, and in his mind, he's having flashbacks of when he saw him on the cross dead. And he goes into like shock and he, he kind of sinks down and he sits and he's just like he's in disbelief. He's incredulous. I just love that movie. I mean, it just was so powerful. And again, did it happen like that? I don't know. But it was pretty amazing. I want to read to you an article. And this is history because I love, if you're, if you're here on any regular basis, you know I bring biblical archaeology or just archaeology that supports the Bible because it all does. There's an article that said even Caesar confirmed the resurrection. I uploaded this to our church Facebook page. It says, After Christ's resurrection, Claudius Caesar, who was a real person, issued a decree for people to stop stealing bodies from Judah's sepulchers or tombs. Without realizing it, he was confirming Christ's resurrection. The Nazareth inscription is a powerful piece of extra-biblical evidence that Christ's resurrection was already being proclaimed shortly after he was raised. It is a marble tablet, 24 inches by 15 inches, written in the Greek language, because the Koine Greek was the language at the time. The Romans conquered the Greek, Greeks, but they liked their way of life, so they kept their language and form of government and things like that for the most part. It's all history. Since the discovery was published in 1930, just prior to World War II, no scholar has produced evidence to disprove its authenticity. It is an abridged decree by Emperor Claudius, A.D. 41 through 54, 
pronouncing the death penalty in Israel for anyone caught robbing bodies from tombs. Normally, grave robbers stole valuables, not bodies. There's, there's nothing you can do with a dead body, especially when it's decaying. But grave robbers back then and still today would steal. They would open them up and they would take any jewelry that they could find, valuables. It refers specifically to the sepulcher stealing, sealing tombs, a special type used in Israel. Okay, that's fact. All right, that's out there. In the movie, there was a scene where Pilate is, is under pressure and he's pressuring the centurion and the centurion, it rolls downhill, right? He's pressuring his men after the resurrection to start digging up bodies. And they're going, and it's, it's a horrible task, as you could imagine. The smell, and they didn't embalm like they, they do today. And there was one point uh, several days after the resurrection where um, the centurion's men come in to Pilate in his court with a, like a burlap-wrapped body, and he, they just throw it on the ground, and they open it up. And Pilate goes, is it him? And the centurion goes, who knows at this point because of the decaying process? And he goes, all right, all right, just, just stop. Just stop doing this. Again, artistic liberty, but here you have it. Here's the inscription. This was going on. There was a frenzy. It got to Nero. Nero, who's higher than Pilate, said, enough. Anyone doing this, because it, it could be a national health hazard, right? Stop. You, it's a death penalty if you continue to do it. It's fascinating, isn't it? Now, I know some of you maybe have been a part of a church or a denomination and maybe not a teaching church. This is what we do because it's so important for us to understand what we believe and why we believe because what's the sense in religion if there's no connection to God? You see what I'm saying? He is risen. I mean, exactly. Nobody claims, listen, Muslims, and, and no offense to anybody, they don't claim that Muhammad rise from the dead. They celebrate his, his, where he rested as, you know, um, popes, kings, uh, religious icons. They all have their tombs. They all have their burial plots, and people go, and they honor that, and they put flowers and things. Christ is the only one who made these outrageous, outlandish, supernatural claims. And let me tell you something. His followers, Rome had no tolerance for new religions. I'm going to get into this. Judaism was well established and they didn't even have tolerance for the Jews. So this whole thing with Christianity starting up, if you read about the voice of the martyrs or the book of martyrs, what they did to Christians and they sprung up everywhere like dandelions, you couldn't kill these people. Why? Because many had seen the risen Savior. This is what we talk about Sunday morning. You know what I'm saying? It isn't about religion. It isn't about we want you to come to our church. It's about know why you believe what you believe and have a relationship with the risen Savior. That's really, really important. Six, Christ appears at Galilee. If we could turn to John 21, starting in verse 1. This isn't the kind of stuff they're going to teach you in academia. I've actually helped college students who have dealt with ornery and argumentative professors who are anti-Christian and I've given them information. I'm like, listen, I'll, I'll go to the university. If he wants to have a debate, I'll go there. It could be fun. But, uh, you know, academia has gotten very weird lately. It's, it's all about one train of thought and Christianity has no room in a lot of these universities today. We need to, we need to teach our kids because if we don't, somebody else will fill them with something that's not good. 
21, starting with verse 1. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. That sea had changed many names over the years, depending on who had conquered it, or the Sea of Galilee. And in this way, he showed himself. Simon, Peter, Thomas, called Didymus, Nathaniel of Cana and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, the two others of his disciples together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we're going with you. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Now you know the Bible is real, because what do you do after a stressful week? You go fishing. Right, Bill? <laughs> okay, continuing on, verse 4. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. So they cast, and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, and that is why he referred to himself, he, you know, he's, it is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he had removed it, and plunged into the sea. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, they saw a fire of coals there and fish laid on it and bread. Again, Jesus is eating. <laughs> 10. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although there were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, Come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? Knowing that it was the Lord. Remember their last image of him, or their last, even in the garden, very different from what he looks like now. Then Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Do you remember how Jesus met the disciples? For those of you that know the Bible well, did the same thing. It was his first miracle in meeting them and his last one in leaving them. And that was one of the things that prompted Peter to say, Lord, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Peter seemed to be argumentative. If you follow the Gospels, you know, who is this guy? He's walking around and he tells, and Peter and, and the other fishermen, this is in the beginning, they're not catching anything. And Jesus suggests to them, he overrules their uh, fishing skills and tells them where to cast the net. And they, a little bit of a, well, nevertheless, at your will, we'll do it. And they catch all this fish. So that was the first miracle sort of or one of the first miracles in meeting them and it's one of the last ones he does it again and peter jumps into the water he can't even wait for the boat to get to his shore peter was so impetuous he jumps into the water and swims towards shore to probably hug jesus but you know this is what's going on here now i actually have a a map in my bible it's a study bible and it shows Jesus had a 40-day post-resurrection ministry. He was actually on the earth for 40 days in his glorified form. And he's everywhere. He's in Jerusalem. He's in Emmaus. He's in Damascus. Or actually, later he goes to Damascus because he finds the Apostle Paul. Uh, where else is he? He's in Galilee. So he's all over the place. And the reason is, I think, this is my reasoning, is because the Roman persecution is going to be so horrific that... They had to see his resurrected form. They had to have something tangible so that when they went through this persecution, and it didn't last forever, that they would stay strong. That this fledgling new faith 
would not peter out, so to speak. Pardon the pun. Uh, number seven, the Great Commission. We're going to go to Matthew 28, verse 16. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Make disciples, make contacts. You know, in some more violent belief systems, it's go conquer. Jesus didn't say go conquer. Right? If you understand his teachings, he said go and love. Have people attracted to you because of your love, because you're your genuineness. And it'll happen naturally. You know, the Holy Spirit will, will you know, God will draw them. They will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Things will happen that you can't see, but just go and do and leave the rest to me, so to speak. You know, Jesus doesn't have us go out there and punch a clock. He doesn't have us go out there and do a tally card. Well, I did 20 contacts today. It just should come naturally. Anything else is really not reflective of the Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 15, 6, the Apostle Paul tells us that at some point, Christ appeared to 500 of his followers at once. There must have been a gathering, okay? 1 Corinthians 15.7, we're told that Christ appeared to his brother James if you follow the Gospels who did not initially believe. Of course, you grew up with Jesus, and probably the fact that he was so perfect made them not like him so much because the parents might have said, why can't you be like your older brother Jesus? I don't know, okay? So, you know, they thought that Jesus initially, you know, had the followings, oh, delusions of grandeur, and then Jesus rises from the dead. And even his skeptical brothers, two of them write uh, works in the Bible. Two out of the 66 books come from two of his brothers. Impressive. Now, again, I was talking about the whole um, 40-day post-resurrection ministry. Just, again, another proof. You can write, all, if anybody here, and listen, and on any C&E, Christmas, Easter, we have some that come in that are skeptical, and that's okay. So was I. Okay? It's okay. Um, look up. Bar Kochba, B-A-R, second word, K-O-C-H-B-A. The, car, the Bar Kochba revolt in A.D. 133. A.D. 133. So what happens is, in this revolt, this guy rises up, doesn't believe in Jesus as the Messiah. He says, no, I'm the Messiah. And he, has, he gets a following. Well, guess what happens with the Romans? Not really thrilled about that. They kill him and all his followers and anybody remotely associated with him that was about 1,900 years ago. Do you see any Bar Kokhbas running around today? I've never seen one of them. But the Christians, there's, there's about a billion people who claim some type of following of Jesus Christ. That's just me. I'm an investigator by nature. I love throwing proof into it. Um, I could do this all day long, but I'm not going to keep you. <laughs> so, but here's the deal, you know, some feel, and maybe they've been made to feel this, I don't know, that it's a pressure to attend church, to come to church. Somebody dragged them into church. This stuff should come naturally. 
you know, we don't, we don't do that here. We don't harass you. We don't call you. We don't ask you how many people you contacted this week. It just, this stuff comes naturally. And can I tell you something? It's people. You know, what does God care about in the end? Human beings, souls. That's it. All the stuff that we have, you know, our possessions, our education, where's that going to go when we die? It's gone. And, you know, the, all the Egyptians who thought it was going to carry with them into the, the next life and the tombs of the pyramids, it's still there. <laughs> the wooden boats, the gold, the silver, maybe grave robbers got it, but you don't carry any of that stuff into the next life. It's just you. It's just people. And you know what? You might be, you know, we, we look at and we read the news, and we, news can make you angry. You see the crimes, you see the injustice, the inhumanity. But we weren't designed, especially as Christians, to read something, get angry, and then separate ourselves from it. We were designed to be a part of the solution, you know? I mean, you don't know who you're going to reach. The loner, the person who has tendencies towards violence or hatred. You might stop the next mass murderer, the next terrorist. You know, how they indoctrinate these people. And a lot of it's done on the Internet. It's sad. And as Christians we were designed to be filled with the Holy Spirit to make a difference like Jesus did. Right? That's what he trained his followers to do. And i got to tell you something. When, when I see a person change, and maybe they have those tendencies, and they're different, I'm like, wow, that's pretty awesome, Lord. Thank you that I was a part of that. So consider what we're talking about in the resurrection. Jesus rose from the dead. He did things that were supernatural. He can do things that are supernatural in your life if you allow him to. I know some of you came here and said, gee, I was hoping that the pastor would, you know, maybe entertain me in some way or make me feel jazzed up, and now he's talking about me. Yeah, that's what it's all about because that's what, the way Jesus would have it. He dealt with individuals. Jesus could care less about the crowds if you read the Gospels. He didn't care. A lot of times he maybe come off as rude. He would walk away from the crowds. And he would deal with the individuals that really wanted to be taken to the next level. Eight, and last, the ascension of Christ. Acts 1, 9 through 11. Now when he, Jesus, had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men, again, their impression, no other way to describe it, stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. I love the patterns in the scripture. God has an MO, so to speak. He has these patterns, right? The last time the believers see him is when he ascends into heaven, into the clouds, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father. 1 Thessalonians 4.13, when the Lord comes back for his people, he's going to return that same way into the clouds, and somehow all believers will see him at the same time and be um, removed before the horrible plagues of Revelation take place. Not everybody agrees with that eschatological interpretation, but I can see the the way it starts and the way it ends. The way he started with the miracle with the fish and the way it ended. You know, some things he does in patterns. And it's, I think it's very reassuring. Let me just say this, that as we close, 
<laughs> I read a, a, a poll that said in the UK, in the United Kingdom, 25% of polled Christians don't believe in the resurrection. And why are you a Christian? Because they go together, right? You know, you either believe it or you don't believe it. And if you don't believe it, you're just going through the motions. And that's why England is really in a lot of trouble right now. A lot of turmoil. Churches are closing down. It's becoming a post-Christian nation. Amazing. A lot of the reformations, a lot of the things that happen, you know, a lot of the people who gave their lives against the crown to, to worship Jesus by the word of God. And now that's starting to crumble. And they're trying to bring that stuff here to this country. You know, the Bible is very clear. Whether you look at the Old Testament or the New, God is always looking. He's always looking for someone who will raise their hand and say, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll help. I'll be a part of that. And he's looking today as well. What's amazing, again, is that not only his, is his tomb empty, but no one else has made such a claim of their leader being raised from the dead. They probably thought, how, how could we even pull this off? It's not even possible. Right? It's, it's, it's an impossible thing to do. But Jesus did it actually, supernaturally. There's not a lot I need to say about this. But whatever we've done this weekend or whatever we're going to do for the rest of the day or this week, we need to focus on the fact that Christ was raised from the dead. He told his disciples he'd be crucified, but he said, that's not the end of it. I'm coming back. And even as he, before he ascended into heaven, he did tell them there would be a future occurrence where he would come back, he would come back and interrupt human history as he did in the first century. And that's on his timetable. But in the end, he expects his believers to be faithful. We do a lot of things in life. We have a lot of distractions, especially in American culture. But Christ needs to be the first and foremost. You know, the Apostle Paul said, basically, if the resurrection isn't true, then you're dead in your sins. Then do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. But Christ ha is raised from the dead. He has been raised. So I just would pray that somebody would get the bug this week, that I, I would be able to Encourage somebody here who maybe comes out two times a year. And I, can, I know there's a lot of places they pick on you, but that, I would, that they would be jazzed about this, that they would even be antagonistic to what I'm saying and say, you know, I want to refute that. And in doing so, atheists and all kinds of you know, high-minded scientists who didn't believe have come to Christ through trying to disprove it. Lee Strobel is one of that. Brilliant mind. Set out to disprove Christianity. There's scores of them. And I would just pray that one person would be affected, that you would get closer to your risen Savior as a result of the resurrection. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.